I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. Up next, Luna talks with Anna Paulina Luna, part of the Gingrich 360 Network. I remember what it was like the first time I had my sense of security ripped from me. Looking back at what happened, it's still shocking. I was young. I was basically a kid. But I learned something from that trauma. When you need to defend yourselves, you don't want to be another statistic. You want to be prepared and you want to be empowered. In other words, it's time to get locked and loaded. This is Anna Paulina Luna with Luna Talks. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to this week's episode of Luna Talks with me, Anna Paulina Luna. This week, I wanted to do an episode really focusing on the Second Amendment and also to, I think, how society actually doesn't really empower women to defend themselves how they should. You know, growing up, I think that it's really important to note that unless you have an active parent that's genuinely focusing on really changing the mindset of their child, if you just go to your, you know, Target or you go to Walmart, you'll see that girls especially are given toys that largely focus on the home, which is, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But when you look at boys' toys, you'll find that boys get, you know, cool Nerf guns or whatever it might be. And that doesn't exist for women, right? And I'm mentioning that because women, and especially with everything that you hear on the left, um, especially on the topics of how, you know, the left seems to think that society has all of these systemic issues, but you look at really the core value of how you empower women to become victors and not victims. And it all starts, in my opinion, with teaching women how to defend themselves. I can tell you that you know, when I was actually in the military, I did volunteer and many times I had to sit through SARC training and training to how in order to be an advocate or to help people that had suffered from sexual assault. And that's something that I actually had volunteered to do as part of an extracurricular, especially when I was on the Airmen's Council. But I remember talking to one of my commanders and I remember telling him, you know, I don't understand why it is if the military is trying to fix this issue of sexual assault, especially on other service members. At least in the Air Force, we maybe received one day of training for, and it wasn't even, it was with pugil sticks, which looked like these massive cotton balls that you just kind of fight other people with. We received maybe one day of training, but for the most part, if you have a regular job in the Air Force, you're not getting combatives training and you're definitely not getting self-defense training. And I felt like in talking to my commander that women, especially if there was this issue with sexual assault, should receive in the military this self-defense training. And he believed it too, but he couldn't get authorization for it for the base from top down. And so it didn't really go anywhere. That was a solution to a problem that was impacting the military at the time. But I think it's bigger than that. I think that that actually transcends into the civilian sector, into what we're seeing today in society. And I can tell you that I remember very distinctly what it was like to have my sense of security taken from me the first time. I remember, and I think I've actually addressed this to you guys on a previous episode, but I had a break-in that happened in Missouri. And at the time I had a female roommate. I didn't at all ever think that, you know, this would happen to me. 
And I remember going into work, letting my work know that there was something really off at my house. I was just, I was picking up on this vibe on the, I just knew in my gut that there was something wrong. Whether you want to call it your sixth sense, whatever it was, there was something that had my spidey senses pinging. And I remember going into work and telling people, hey, there's something going on at my house. Um, You know, the back door keeps being unlocked. There's some off things. And I remember people saying, oh, you know, you're probably just tired. Maybe you should go talk to mental health. You're overworked. And I quote, you're literally overworked. Maybe you need to take some time off. But I knew something was wrong. And I remember after, you know, we found out that there was someone breaking in and there was actually a stalker situation. Um, I remember actually being ordered back on base. And that was because at that time, that was literally the only thing that my commander could do to one, keep me and my roommate safe, but also two, to take us out of a bad situation. Because at the time we were living off base and we were only 19 years old. We were just kids. But think about that. The only way that he could keep me safe in this situation was by literally ordering me back onto a military installation that had 24-hour security. And looking back at it, it's still a bit shocking. I And even my dad will still bring it up to this time. He'll say, you know, I don't know what it was. He's like, I wish that I could have been there. But he couldn't. He was going through his own stuff at that time. But my squadron commander, who basically assumed a parental position, and then also, too, I mean, mind you, he's in charge of us. So this is also his responsibility, which to this day, I thank him for. But he was about 35 at the time. So he was fairly young himself. I don't know how most people look at this situation and understand how am I going to deal with this? And also too, as a commander, now I'm in charge of two young girls and I want to make sure that they stay safe. So he was about my age making these very important decisions. But at the time, I still didn't realize that, you know, there was going to be a way that I would eventually be able to take back my sense of security. And so shortly thereafter, I ended up getting orders to move down to Florida. At that time, Andy and I had gotten married. And I really did think that after I moved, maybe I would actually feel safer. But I was completely wrong. Nothing changed. In fact, I think that it actually kind of got worse because at this time, I didn't really go talk to anyone about it. I still did not feel safe. I did not have any way of defending myself. And I realized, and I kind of started realizing I might have a little bit of trauma from it when it would get dark outside. I was catching myself going around to every single window, um, closing them. I was making sure the windows were locked, that the doors were locked. And that was when it would start getting dark. So I almost regressed into this childlike state to where you are afraid of the dark. And what didn't help is that at the time, you know, my first year that I got down to Hurlburt here um, here in Florida, actually Andy was getting ready to deploy, but he was still in training. And so he was gone a majority of the time. And we lived in this two-story house. I didn't really know anyone around. I was still completely freaked out because I don't ever think that they actually got the guy who was breaking in, at least not criminally. Um, And so this guy was out there. And of course, you know, you're a young girl and it it can be one of those situations where it just completely leaves you freaked out. And what I experienced, what I'd gone through is only a fraction of what some women experienced who may have had similar, if not worse experiences, you know, not just in Florida, but across the entire country. And now that I look back on it, I realized I'd gone through a significant type of trauma. You know, growing up, I already had all of these things happen. But this to actually have my sense of security taken from me, you know, we're talking about my home, um, an area where I was supposed to feel safe, 
an area where I, you know, kind of was, it was my little thing. And then when you have that sense of security taken from you, it, it leaves you feeling very exposed and extremely violated. And after that, you know, I should have probably talked to someone about it. I should have probably, you know, been a little bit more proactive with walking through it. Cause I, you know, after that did happen, I mean, look at what I was going through. I couldn't even sleep through the night, but sometimes you just learn. And for me, I'm so thankful that I had someone by the name of Tech Sergeant Arnett who actually explained to me what a concealed carry was. You know, I cannot even begin to understand what it's like for women who have been raped and who have suffered from extreme abuse. And even in some instances, a woman who may have had someone try to attempt to take their life. Naturally, after I got orders to move to Florida, uh, shortly after Andy and I had actually gotten married, I had hoped that this would go away. But I realized that that wasn't going to be happening anytime soon. I even went as far as buying a massive Doberman Pinscher. I think our dog was at the time maybe about 120 pounds, so a huge dog. But not even that made me feel safe. And really, this conversation with Tech Sergeant Arnett really changed my life forever because it was the first time that I think someone had sat down, told me obviously what had happened was not normal, but that there was a way that I could fix it, right? And that this thing called a concealed carry was going to be how I was actually going to be able to defend myself. And I always talk about how the military and even law enforcement communities really do develop this sense of camaraderie and almost a family type perspective. And, you know, at the time, Sergeant Arnett really was kind of that father figure that I didn't really have directly around me to give me guidance and really help me learn and and work through this whole thing. So there had been a group of us. We've been on shift. And at the time, I was stationed at Hurlburt, so I was working night shifts. And so we'd all kind of sit around and just chit chat. And and really, after we were done with our work, pass the time that way. And we started talking about firearms. And in the military, and I think in the law enforcement community especially, firearms are not looked as anything but a tool to defend yourself. And I think that that's a really important distinction between how we look at, you know, firearms and guns and how your average civilian does, right? There seems to be this sense, at least in society today, that civilians think that guns are these dangerous, you know, evil weapons. And when in actuality and in retrospect, if you look at in, you know, even into the 50s and 60s, when the NRA was actually teaching firearm safety in classrooms and elementary schools and public schools, mind you, that there's this different persona and I think approach to firearms as a whole. But we're sitting around and we're all talking. And we somehow got onto the topic of my break-in. And I remember, and I'll never forget what he said. He just really kind of just from a lax, just, oh, why don't you do this kind of perspective and mentality? He goes, why don't you just get your concealed carry? I didn't even at all know what the laws for Florida were at the time for this, but the way that he said it and the confidence, and he's just like, oh yeah, it's, it's easy to get. Just go ahead. You have your you know, weapons training from when you were in basic training, you can bring that with you and you should be able to get it almost immediately. So sure enough, right after that conversation, I actually went over to my computer and I started looking it up and I printed out the form. And the next day, right after I got off shift, I actually ran over to the Department of Agriculture and I was able to get my concealed carry almost immediately. After this short break, I can actually walk you through some of the steps of what that entailed. 
I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. So right after I get to the Department of Agriculture, which in Florida is where you apply for your concealed carry, I had to fill out, or actually I'd already filled out the paperwork. So I turned that in, I gave them my ID. And then I also had proof of my firearms training, which for a lot of states, in order to get your concealed carry, you have to take a certain amount of hours of courses, or you typically tend to you know, take a concealed carry course that satisfies all the rules. And then you can turn that over to say, hey, look, I've had training. I know what I'm doing. And then shortly thereafter, it's usually about a week waiting period from the time that you actually apply to the time that you actually get your permit, right? So in some states, they'll require an ID type permit to where you have your picture on it. And others, it's not. It's just a laminated paper, basically. For me, right after I applied for it, I was able to get it um, almost immediately. And that was the first time um, after I got my concealed carry that I was actually able to sleep through the night again because I realized that no matter what, if I was home alone or not, in any circumstance, I at least felt that I would be able to defend myself and that I would be able and I would be okay. And I think for so many women, self-defense is not something that we commonly see promoted in mainstream society. They definitely don't teach it in grade school to young girls, which I think that they absolutely should. And when I do have kids, I fully anticipate on teaching my young girls, if I do have them, self-defense right away. But you don't even hear about it in high school, right? Like instead, you'll be offered a class in home economics or PE. For some people who don't know what home economics is, we'll teach you how to do cooking and sewing, which there's nothing wrong with that. But if society really, truly wants to help women and we really, truly do want to help women learn to empower themselves and defend themselves, we have to start teaching them that at an early age. But I mean, a question is, is like, don't you think that teaching women how to defend themselves may be in the long run a better strategy to help society empower women to not be victims? That's what we should be focusing on. And I felt like after I discovered that I could get my concealed carry with my story, I felt like I had to share that information with other people because I was traumatized. I wanted other people to know that they had another alternative and a way of dealing with this. And I didn't realize that in me just sharing my story that people would give me pushback, especially on social media. You know, my military friends and, you know, my cop friends, they understood But it was really my civilian friends that had this stigma almost about firearms that they didn't understand why at all I needed to do that, even though I'd gone through this horrifying thing. You know, these women's clothing companies at the time that I was working with, they didn't want me to at all work with them anymore after I started posting that I was using firearms or that I was posting that I was at the range or telling my story. The one thing that I surprisingly got is that people said that they didn't want me to be political, but I didn't think that I was being political. I was simply, and this was not political at all in my mind, I was simply just telling my story in an effort to get other people to realize that they could defend themselves. 
Was I not exhibiting the ultimate form of supporting women by empowering them to defend themselves by sharing my story? And that to me is something that I'll never understand. I don't think that the Second Amendment is a quote unquote political issue because again, in my instance, it essentially was used to really take back some security that I was seriously lacking after that awful thing happened. And it was being used in my case to empower me to defend myself so that I would not be a statistic. But that wasn't the bad part. The bad part, I think, was when the name calling started, right? So I was being called a terrorist. I was being called a baby killer. Um, I remember seeing one page call me, and this was a massive page of millions of people. And they posted my photo with me shooting and they called me a horse squirrel, which I, you know, I had to call my sister because she's a little bit younger than me. But I remember asking what that was. And it's apparently a Gen Z insult, right? Um, but I didn't care because I knew somewhere out there, there was a woman like me or even a young man like me who may or may not have gone through a similar circumstance. But if I shared my story and if they heard what I was saying, that they might be able to one, defend themselves, but also to that they might not have to be in the circumstance that I was in dealing with the trauma later on because they always initially early on had that ability to protect themselves. So it's really, really easy. It's so easy to get into that mindset of maybe it won't happen to you. But I do believe that that's the most dangerous mindset. And you might ask why. And it's because when you think like that, you get complacent. The fact is, is that this world is not perfect. In fact, it's very dangerous. I think that most people know after hearing previous episodes that I've discussed, you know, what I was exposed to, I didn't think, and growing up, I didn't think that that was abnormal circumstances. Now looking back at it, you realize that most people don't go through that, but that, you know, those stories make me who I am today and being able to share them may prevent bad things happening to others in the future, right? Because they're aware of that because they know, especially through policy, what works and what doesn't work. But granted, even in retrospect here in the United States, we're in one of the safer countries in the world, but as a whole, this world still has a lot of evil in it and there, it should never be on your bucket list to want to become a statistic. Some of those statistics have unfortunately increased, especially after the COVID-19 lockdowns. I'd always wondered, especially when a lot of the local officials were pushing across the country for these extended lockdowns and curfews and all this stuff. I mean, did they ever stop to consider what happened to Americans that were already struggling with issues of domestic violence? We'll get into that right after this short break, but I found some really surprising statistics that will leave you shocked. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. So as I was researching this topic, the Orlando Sentinel did a great article on this exact topic. And the study covered domestic violence incidences spiking more than 8% nationwide in 2020 following the lockdown orders. So this analysis actually came from the National Commission on COVID-19 and Criminal Justice and was based on several studies from U.S. cities, so across the nation, that used police data from phone calls, domestic violence hotlines, and health records. 
And mind you, these are just the incidences that were reported. For many people who are victims of domestic violence, who are in abusive situations, a lot of it does not go reported because these people feel sometimes the way that the state laws are set up, it's very hard to prove abuse is happening. And then also too, these people are already so far traumatized and afraid that their abuser is going to hurt them or kill them in some instances that they actually might not report it due to being in fear of their lives. During these lockdowns, curfews and forced isolations brought family members together, but sometimes we're also exposing them and forcing them to more abuse than ever before. And depending on your state, like I had mentioned earlier, it isn't exactly easy to prove abuse is happening. And sometimes that abuse can become very, very violent. And you then see those statistics on women who have been killed because of domestic violence abuse. And it's alarming, which is exactly why no matter how scared you are, you should always try to defend yourself. And I want to be very clear here. I'm not advocating for violence. Okay. But what I am advocating for is self-defense and not just for women, but for men as well, because there seems to also be this issue in society that men can't suffer from abuse and they absolutely can. And if you don't believe me, watch the show Women Who Kill. I think it's on the Discovery Channel. But in this particular instance, and in my experience, it is especially important for women to be made aware of this option as women are biologically the smaller species, right? I mean, according to an article from ABC, men are actually about 20% larger than women, meaning it's not reasonable to assume that in any circumstances where a woman is having to fight off a man that she's going to be able to likely fend off her attacker. In fact, I think it's quite the opposite. According to rain.org, one out of every six American women have been a victim of rape or attempted rape in their lifetime. That is so sad. Think about the six women that you might know, whether it's at work, whether it's at home, your mom, your sister, whoever it might be. One in every six has had someone try to rape them or have been a victim of attempted rape in their lifetime. That is so incredibly scary. The fact is, is that sometimes 911 may take too long to respond. And you guys heard in the previous episode from Officer Vasquez that especially with this ongoing society movement, these organizations that are pushing to defund the police, that actually literally does mean that these departments aren't going to have as much money to pay the officers, meaning that there's less officers to respond, especially to these 911 calls. When you have to defend yourself, it's better to be prepared than to end up a statistic. And if society really truly wants to help women, we have to start by showing them how to empower one another. So if you are a man with a young daughter, mother, sister, even a best friend, make sure that you're showing her how to protect herself. Empower her to take her protection into her own hands because it can one day save her life. And just like I listed those statistics, if we really want to change those numbers and we want to make sure that we are protecting women, then we have to start by empowering them to be able to defend themselves. Before we go, I just wanted to thank you guys so much for listening. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review and rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. You can also find me on Parlor, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Real Anna Paulina. And a special thank you to our producer, Drew Steele, writer Aaron Kliegman, and executive producers Debbie Myers and speaker Newt Gingrich, part of the Gingrich 360 Network.
I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening.